I'm here at the North Korean border, just a short distance from labor camps where more than 70,000 people are being held simply because they are Christians. The stories of persecution I've heard here are absolutely incredible. Entire families are sent to prison for crimes such as owning a Bible or telling someone about Jesus. They are beaten with electric stun rods and forced to work 12 hours a day of hard labor with little food, water, or rest. But despite the risk of such horrifying conditions, the North Korean church continues to grow. The people of North Korea are choosing hope over fear. They know God's word is the only thing powerful enough to break through the darkness of the most oppressive regime on earth. That's why they're constantly begging for more Bibles. And we're struggling just to keep up with the demand. But today, you can help meet the physical and spiritual needs of persecuted Christians and other people in need around the world. Your persecuted brothers and sisters need you. People lacking the most basic daily essentials need you. So will you help those in need today and give them hope for tomorrow? I've been asked by the persecuted church to be their mouth, to be their advocate, uh, to tell their stories. So I'm on a nationwide book tour, and I'm so uh, thankful that you've allowed me to come and share their stories with you. So from the outset, I want to say I'm here on their behalf. And secondly, I've just finished a book on the persecuted church. You know, there are not many books out there about Christian persecution. And I just sat down and told all the stories that God's allowed me to experience over the years and to tell their story. And uh, all the proceeds of this book uh, go to the persecuted church. I'm not taking any royalties. World Health's not taking any. All the proceeds go to the persecuted church. And pastor, when I first started this tour on the eve of the first service out in San Diego, I really felt God was telling me, don't sell your books. My, my son told me, Dad, don't sell your books. Nobody's going to pay you money to buy your book. I said, well, son, that's not very nice. He said, no, really, I saw one of your older books on Amazon for a quarter. He said, and it was autographed. He said, do you know how embarrassing that is? So God said, don't sell your books. And I really felt led just to give them away for a donation of any amount. And uh, every week I have people that can't afford a book. I said, take one. And I remember that first Sunday morning when I stepped out on faith. I said, okay, God, we're, we're not going to charge. 
because it's all going to the persecuted church. And the first man that walked back to the table dropped a check into the offering plate for $1,000. And it was if God was telling me, these are for persecuted believers. And so I want to thank you in advance. I asked your pastor if it was okay if we could designate today all the funds we raised for the persecuted church for Ukraine. Um, if you're like me, you're helplessly watching television saying, what can we do to help them? One, one statistic that most people don't know is that Ukraine is 80% Christian. So this is not just a political persecution for them. It's a religious persecution. And if, if you don't have any money, take, take the book. You can pay cash. You can make a donation check, uh, a credit card. And I, I just ask you to do this. Just pray and ask God what he'd have you to do. And will you give as if it were your family that's going to be on the receiving end? Uh, because it is. There are brothers and sisters in Christ. So I want to begin this morning by reading to you one page out of my book, the prologue. Now there's an idea. You can either buy the book or I'm going to read it to you. <laughs> Which one do you want? And sometimes I stutter. One page in the prologue. The book's entitled, If I Die, Risking Death to Live for Jesus. And just... This will tell you why that title, If I Die. Let me read it to you quickly. I met Ping several years ago on a trip to Vietnam. Her story of persecution is the kind that haunts you for days and weeks later and in some respects still haunts me today. I'll never forget the look on her face as she recounted the abuse and torture she had endured for being a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. This 34-year-old woman had once been a Buddhist and lived in a monastery. She had been sick for many years, and when Ping accepted Christ, she was immediately healed from her disease. She is now an evangelist and church planter, and when I met her, she had started six churches and had 47 more new churches developing. One day, Ping's husband was asked by a new convert to help him destroy his family's ancestral altar. An informant turned them in, and the police videotaped them. And the two men were arrested, and Ping's husband was sent to prison for months. She was left alone with her young children. This young woman, who had been arrested six times by the secret police, she suffered continuous persecution. She was beaten numerous times, detained for weeks at a time, and fined the equivalent of $250, which was six months' salary. The police beat her on the head every day for two weeks. She almost died. When she survived, they decided to tie her hands 
together and throw her overboard from a boat in the river. Once again, she miraculously survived. The police then forced her to march up and down a mountain for days. She said that when she could no longer stand the beatings, she would pray and ask God for strength. One day, the police publicly humiliated her by tearing off her shirt and parading her through the streets. She stood in that public gathering, half naked, with her hands tied behind her back and said, I live for Jesus Christ. If I die, I die for Jesus Christ. Nowhere in the world is there more persecution right now than in Ukraine. TV, radio, and social media bombard us with constant updates and gruesome images, but rarely does the media mention that religious freedom is also at risk in this war. Ukraine is fighting for its independence from Russia in the church as well as in the streets. And with Vladimir Putin's attack on a country that's nearly 80% Christian, the Ukrainians' persistent determination to fight back isn't only patriotic, it is also a battle for their beliefs. And the result of Putin's persecution is unfolding before our eyes. Putin may not be the Antichrist, but he is an Antichrist. He's an anti-Jesus man of ruthless intent who will stop at nothing to reestablish the USSR. I know the statistics are changing daily, but more than 3.7 million refugees have fled Ukraine. 1.2 million of them are children. 10 million people are homeless. That's 25% of the population don't have a home to go to at night. And 4.3 million of those displaced are children. We're watching a new iron curtain grinding into place. And in its wake are persecuted victims with names, with families, and with stories. I received uh, an email a week or so ago from one of our World Health Board members. She's a pediatrician and lives in Gainesville, Florida. She said, Vernon, at this moment, my brother and his wife and their five kids are on the Ukrainian-Polish border trying to get across to Poland They have been living in the Ukraine for the past year and for the past 72 hours have been fleeing from their home in what feels like a harrowing movie. They are currently in a bus depot near the Polish border after walking 15 miles with thousands of other Ukrainians in zero degree weather. At one point, my brother was separated from his family, but thankfully, they've been reunited. They have very strong faith and know that God is with them, and God goes before them. As soon as 
Russia invaded Ukraine, World Help sent a team to meet with our partners that we've been working there with them for years. Just one of our partners in Ukraine, Pastor, I can't say a lot of details, but I can tell you this. We're working with a a Baptist seminary that's turned their whole basement into a distribution center, and we have a network of 500 churches that are distributing the aid that we're getting into the country on a daily basis. That's God's plan, by the way, because the local church is the hope of the world. And just so you know, we've been partnering with them for years. We trust them. We trust each other. And just watch this to see what's uh, taking place. We just crossed the border from Ukraine back into Poland. It was quite a scene. There was a line about 10 kilometers long of cars. People have probably been waiting all night just across the border. Really difficult scene, mostly mothers, children, um, the elderly. It was quite an experience inside Ukraine. I mean, just the sheer amount of refugees that are fleeing the eastern part of the country, cities like Kiev and Kharkiv, um, headed to our partners' refugee center in Lviv. They're doing tremendous work providing hot meals for those people, accommodations for overnight, clothing, uh, most importantly, transportation to get to the border. We can't thank our donors enough for giving generously, but we're just getting started. There's a lot more work to do. Uh, There's still going to be probably a couple more million people that are going to try to escape Ukraine. I'm here with my daughter on February 24. We get up because of very hard noise, and well, your daughter, it's, uh, we choose subway station because uh, there we don't hear it so much. We live in subway station for seven days. What we take with us, this is what we have now. And do you know if your home is, is okay? I don't know. You don't know? The life never be like it was before. Sometimes I think this is a dream, and someday I wake up. I can't believe in 21st century we have this situation. This is another reality. We have partners in uh, Ukraine, partners in Poland, Partners in Romania, we cannot get the aid to them fast enough. Our partners told us of a young woman who arrived in Poland with her seven-day-old baby. She had fled the shelling of Kharkiv, which meant she had given birth while on the run and received no medical treatment at all. Our team and partners on the ground in Ukraine immediately established a feeding center where they fed 35 Hundred refugees in one hour. It was the only meal they got that day. There was a little boy who had reached safety. He was so hungry that when our volunteers handed him a croissant, he ate it while it was still wrapped in the plastic. And his mother said he hadn't eaten for two days. The persecution of Christians around the world today 
is more severe than it's ever been in my lifetime. We have witnessed more martyrs in the 20th century due mainly to communism than in the previous 19 centuries combined. Let that one sink in. They are harassed. They are abused. Christians are brutalized in Nigeria, assassinated in Iran, beaten to death in China. Some are even executed because of their faith. In more than 60 countries of the world, this is going on. One estimation says that a Christian is killed approximately every five minutes for their faith. If that's true, that means we have seen one million martyrs in the last 10 years. And I say to you this morning, a million martyrs is more than enough. One of the men, the apostle John discipled, was Polycarp, an early church father in Greece. And on February 23rd, 155 AD, just like Jesus entering Jerusalem on a donkey, Polycarp was led into the city of Smyrna, Greece on a donkey. And the Roman governor pleaded with Polycarp to recant his belief in Jesus Christ. And Polycarp responded with those now famous words when he said, 86 years have I served him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Polycarp was taken to the center of the Colosseum where the bloodthirsty crowd chanted for death by beast, but the officials opted for fire. The pyre was lit and Polycarp prayed. He said, I bless you because you have thought me worthy of this day and this hour to be numbered among your martyrs in the cup of your Christ. Soon the flames engulfed him, but they did not consume him. And like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before him, Polycarp was fireproof. The executioner stabbed Polycarp through the flames and he bled out. But not before the 12th martyr of Smyrna had lived out John's exhortation. Be faithful even to the point of death. You know, rarely, rarely a week goes by that we don't hear about a, another church being attacked or a missionary being held hostage or a Christian being murdered for their faith. But why is it that so many American Christians uh, seem not to care about that? A leader who works with the persecuted church has given two theories about Christians' relative lack of interest in the suffering of their brothers and sisters around the globe. He said, first of all, American Christians, for the most part, are not interested in anything that happens outside of the boundaries of the United States. 
Number two, he said, American Christians have no experience of persecution or suffering for their faith that remotely resembles the experiences of many of our overseas brothers and sisters, so it's difficult for them to empathize. I've seen the actual scars. I've heard the heartache and sorrow in their voices. I've seen the suffering in their eyes. It's an unforgettable picture that's etched on my heart and in my mind forever, and I pray that God will never allow me to forget. We should be thanking God that we don't have to watch our loved ones, our wives, our husbands, our children suffer terrible pain and anguish, possibly death, because of their faith. Someone suggested that when trying to make sense of persecution and martyrdom, four key reasons are usually given. Number one, persecution purifies the church. There are no nominal Christians in the persecuted church. There are no Sunday morning attendees in the persecuted church. There are no casual Christians in the persecuted church. Following their faith is life and death. Number two, persecution unifies the church. There are no disputes over minor doctrinal issues in the persecuted church. There are no struggles for power in the persecuted church. Number three, persecution strengthens the church. Believers in the persecuted church are courageous and bold because every day they are compelled to take a stand for Jesus Christ. And number four, persecution grows the church. In 1950, when communism took over in China and missionaries were expelled, there were only one million Christians in all of the entire country. Today, even the Chinese government recognizes that there are at least 44 million Christians in China, and some estimate that it could be as high as 130 million Christians in China. And the reason we don't know for sure is that so many of them are meeting secretly in house churches. So how should we as Christians respond to persecution? Does it really affect us? And what is our responsibility? Until this year, the persecution of believers was the most severe in North Korea. In fact, for 20 consecutive years in a row, North Korea was listed as the most persecuted country in the world for Christians. It was briefly taken over by Afghanistan, which now has been taken over by Ukraine. So Ukraine is the most persecuted country in the world. In one instance in North Korea, when a group of church leaders did not reject Christ, police directed a bulldozer be driven over them, crushing them to death in front of the rest of the church. Government officials in North Korea 
round up entire families up to three generations and throw them in labor camps. A believer can be sentenced for up to 15 years for just owning a Bible or singing a hymn or praying all things we've done already here this morning. Most Christians, though, die within three years. So in reality, when they go to the prison camp, it's a death sentence. It's estimated that there are 300,000 Christians in North Korea with possibly 70,000 of them being held in political labor camps. 25% of all Christians in North Korea are in prison. And I don't pretend to understand even a fraction of what these people are going through. But if I were in their shoes, I would want to know that someone still cares about me. I'm reminded of the profound words of Martin Niemöller, a prominent Lutheran pastor in Germany who spent time in Nazi concentration camps and was an outspoken critic of Adolf Hitler. He wrote these words. He said, first they came for the socialist and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionist and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me and there was no one left to speak for me. The time is long past for simply feeling shocked or even simply feeling sorry for our fellow Christians around the world. We cannot, as children of God, stand idly by and do nothing. It's time to act. And we must unify as the body of Christ to aid those who are suffering persecution because of their religious beliefs. We must speak up on their behalf to bring awareness to their situation. That's what they've asked me to do. And there's so much more that needs to be done, so many needs. They need to have training to plant churches. That's what we're doing in the seminary. In India alone, there are more than 500,000 villages and cities without a church of any kind. We must train leaders to plant more churches. They need to have buildings in which to meet. The Hindus say, if your God is so great, why don't you have a place to worship him? They need Bibles. There are still millions of Christians around the world who have never even held a Bible, let alone own one. And we can do something about that. They need prayer. Nothing of eternal significance is ever accomplished apart from prayer. We must be mobilized to pray for the persecuted church. And they need for us to follow their example. You say, what do you mean? Well, the persecuted church does not understand our lifestyle. The persecuted church does not understand our materialism, our selfishness, 
our prayerlessness. It's a mystery to them how they can have so very little and love God so very much. And then compared to us, it it appears to them that we have so very much, but compared to them, love God so very little. We must pray for them. And we must give to them. They're our family. This is our family. My friend Luis Palau said before he died, how many more Christians will have to suffer and die before we realize that it is our job to try to stop these atrocities? We are often so caught up with our own petty problems that we don't make time to think about the Christians who are bleeding and dying across the world. 1 John 3.17, I've saved my text for the end. And I'd like to read it out of the message translation with your permission. And it says, if you see some brother or sister in need and have the means to do something about it, but turn a cold shoulder and do nothing, what happens to God's love? It disappears. And you made it disappear. My dear children, let's not just talk about love. Let's practice real love. And in the words of William Wilberforce, the abolitionist who helped end slavery in Great Britain, he said this, you can choose to look the other way, but you can never say again that you did not know. On behalf of of our persecuted brothers and sisters. We can do something to help them today. Will you help?